This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show for your Thursday. Good to be with you today. Matt and Patrick here today. Ross Dadheim is going to join us from RJSB Employment Justice. We're going to talk a little bit about ethics because I think that's a discussion that we do need to have to have, uh, especially with some of the news that's going on out there. Patrick, how are you today? Doing good. I saw the Griffin Jacks implosion live and up close yesterday afternoon at the ballpark. It's not just him. There is just one of the things about the Twins I can't stand, and I just I've said this all season long: is great, you won two out of three in Philly, great, and then you come take on an insanely substandard team in the Detroit Tigers, and you lose, you split the series at home, and you lose the season series to them. It's unacceptable, and I just I don't know what the heck is wrong with this team. I just don't know. I mean, I'm actually I got to tell you the truth, Patrick. I've already, I mean. I'm not going to pay attention to a team that's going to get swept in three games again in the playoffs. And that's what's going to happen. Even if they're playing, they're, they're going to be the underdog at home versus the, first, the number, you know, the, uh, the wild card team. And so I, I just don't know what else. You know, I just, I'm, I'm paying attention to the Vikings. I'm paying attention to the Gophers. I'm paying attention to other sports things. I'm just not. I'm very interested. I got to tell you the truth. Uh, I'm 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 very excited about this final in the Women's World Cup between Spain and England. That is going to be fun. Both teams, I don't think either team has won the the, the Women's World Cup. It's kind of crazy to think that England has never won a a Women's World Cup just because of how powerful the men have been for decades. It to a point it doesn't surprise me at all. For the reason being is that the idea of a women's version of a soccer league or a soccer team, it took a lot longer in mainland Europe. I mean, Scandinavian countries picked up on it early, but it just was something that, you know, the, the kind of the male-dominated society of Europe kind of like, oh, that's nothing there. And then the U.S., you know, in the U.S., it was kind of one of those things where we were kind of above ahead of the curve as well. And so it was quite a few of the Asian countries as well. It just is, yeah, these other countries, it just, it's taken them a longer time to ramp up to this. And just they didn't have the infrastructure in place. I mean, I, I, I got to tell you the truth. I am stunned that this country doesn't do better at soccer uh, when, on both the men's and the women's side because we start kids at soccer in this country in intense programs at three. If your kid has got ability by six or seven, they're already getting courted by better programs and you know, yet at the same time, it's just it's it's kind of one of those things where we our development is just not as is where the rest of the world is still yet, and it's it kind of that stuns me. That's a, we we do the same thing with golf, and we dominate golf worldwide. We you know, we dominate golf, both men's and women's. Now, maybe not as much of the women's side as it used to be, but we do the same. You know, we golfers kids get out there start golfing early. You know, it's it's. Yeah. I just I, it's a different culture, man. So, nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Hey, look, I got a letter here. Actually, I didn't get this letter. My daughter got this letter. Oh, here it is. It's from Dean Phillips. 
<laughs> he is our congressman in our district here. And he sent my soon-to-be freshman in college a, a letter. Let me, let me read this. A Congress of the United States House of Representatives. Oh, boy. Congratulations on your graduation from Wyzetta High School. As your representative in Congress, I write to extend my best wishes to you as enter the next phase of your life's journey. Your graduation in time is a Trojan. Our milestones to be celebrated, so I hope you take a moment to reflect on your remarkable accomplishments and challenges that you've overcome all along the way. This just what a what a nice touch. What a what a really nice touch. Unfortunately, I I I, I hate to to be a uh, uh, you know, a nitpicker kind of sort of thing here. My daughter didn't graduate from Wyzetta High School. <laughs> My daughter wasn't a Trojan. She wasn't. Uh, I can tell you right now who's not happy about this. My daughter, <laughs> who, is, who is, by the way, uh, voting age and going to be a poli-sci major. So uh, swing and a miss. This is what you call an unforced error uh, in, in this situation. Uh, I, I, it, it, she was not happy just FYI, but Hey, sure. Why not? Why is that a go Trojans? Huh? It's the thought that counts, isn't it? I don't know if that's really necessarily the case. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. We got a lot of stories to get to today. Uh, including if I may, if I may take a, a quick little point here and in, uh, in talking about the, uh, the the posts I made this morning, I, I don't know if you've seen the the Republican Senate Committee, the Republican House Committee, Minnesota Senate, Minnesota House, the Minnesota GOP. They're all like, "How dare Governor Walls send you these inferior rebate checks? How dare he now?" I made a point this morning of, you know, really kind of <laughs> a, a lot of this, if I may. Um, first of all, what you're really angry about, let's be honest. And no, I know that when you're out of power, you're going to, we would have given you every person in Minnesota a billion dollars. We would have. But those Democrats... Um, they keep saying that everyone got only like $200. Uh, okay, wait a second here. I got $1,300 in the bank. Thanks, kids. Um, I got I got a fairly substantial check from the state. Plus, I don't have to pay for school lunches for a school year anymore. That's $500 per kid per, per family. So thank you. Then there's that $1,750 tax kit, child tax credit that goes on out. But that's, once again, mainly for the lower income kids. And the Social Security tax on Social Security payments for 75% of all receiveries, basically anyone that's making less than $100,000, uh, basically you don't have to pay tax on that anymore. Uh, so you have all that. I don't know about you, but I got a lot of money from the, the DFL. So thanks, DFL. You're just angry. You guys are just angry that that the money's going to anyone but the 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 uber wealthy. I mean that's that's what Republican tax breaks tax rebates are. I mean, I'll never forget the the Tim Pawlenty one where it was money for Funyuns and Yoohoo. You know, here and what they do is here is just that such the dis, disingenuous nature of Republicans. They'll send you 20 bucks. And then you'll say, well, but what about the cost of health care? And they'll look like, well, we sent you $20. 
It's not our fault you were loosey-goosey with that. We send you the money to cover your $20,000 worth of medical bills. I mean, well, $20 of it, that's on you. The rest of it's on you. I mean, why do you expect us to help you out? That's the, uh, that, that is the Republican thing, to send you enough money to buy some Funyuns and some Yoohoo and basically then act like they've solved all your problems. And when you bring another problem to them, they say, well, we gave you Funyuns and Yoohoo money. <laughs> you want cheap education? What, what are you talking about? So, yeah, just, you know, and once again, what, what they have to do, and this is, and the Republicans, their messaging is better than the Democrats. They are currently convincing Republican voters that money in their wallets from the DFL is a bad thing. And right now, I've already run into a bunch of Republicans who are like, yeah, why did you give me this money back? <laughs> like, jeez. Yeah. Well, you can always send the money back. I didn't say I was going to do that. I'm just angry about it. Well, then shut up. You know, either either if you don't want it, send it back to the federal government or the state government, rather. Seriously, Republicans who are furious about your tax rebate, all right, put your money where your mouth is. Send it back. Say, I'd rather have nothing than this check. Okay, fine. Send it back. Nothing stopping you. Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out. It's your bluff I'm calling right now. So 952-946-6205. How about those, how about those Trojans, huh? Ah, how about that, YZ? Uh, their football team going to be good this year? Should be pretty good. Hockey team should be pretty good this year. They got a lot going on up in Wyzetta, but uh, don't tell Dean Phillips. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, apparently he's a fan. <laughs> apparently every child in his district must have come from there. I, I don't. Oopsie. Like I said, I'm, I'm more laughing at it. My daughter is not happy with you. FYI, Dean. Just, you know, you might want to take a moment away from the national show's and just, you know, hey, can we double check those lists of uh, mailers there? 952-946-6205. Way to go, Delano. Uh, 952-946-6205. Uh, it, it's uh, Tina Smith, the senator from the state of Minnesota, was, uh, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm very impressed with her tone and attitude towards this appeals court ruling on Wednesday. On the federal appeals court Wednesday ruled that the abortion pill can still stay on the market, but agreed to the lower court that ultimately it should be reverted to prescription and dosage instructions that were in place before 2016. The appeals court ruling um, on this, the um, appeals court ruling on this um, it will ultimately be put on hold until the U.S. Supreme Court decides whether to take the case under a decision the high court released in April. The ruling in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is expected to quickly be appealed to the high court. The ruling means uh, uh, um, Mifflepristone uh, remains legal and on the market in states that haven't banned it, and due to the Supreme Court's earlier order can be used under modifications approved by the FDA and Drug Administration. Uh, Mifepristone was originally approved in 2000 and is the first of two drugs used in a medica- medication abortion. It is approved to be used up to 10 weeks. Gestation is also frequently used to treat miscarriages. The Kaiser Family Foundation released a survey in June showing that 62% of nearly 600 OBGYN surveyed say they use the drug with a second drug, uh, Mifepristone, to treat miscarriages. 
Miscarriages are very common and an important aspect of many OGBYN scope of practice and sometimes involve the same procedures and medications that are used for abortions. KFF wrote, in early pregnancy, medical management of miscarriages with the drugs allows for a shorter time course uh, for non-viable pregnancy tissue to pass on its own in patients without complications. So it's something that is used when there, there has been a miscarriage and it is needed. But Republicans are trying to stop you from being able to have this uh, option on the table. The three-judge panel from New Orleans-based appeals court issued the ruling Wednesday, heard oral arguments in the case in May after the federal government appealed the district judge's ruling. The judges had dozens of questions for the federal government's attorney and lawyer representing a manufacturer and the attorney for the Alliance Defending Freedom, the anti-abortion legal organization that originally filed the case. Wednesday's ruling – and by the way, can I just tell you how much I imagine the Republicans are loving the fact that now all of a sudden as they keep screaming, abortion's not on the ballot? It's not. You know, here there, um, you know, here it is. Yes, it is. Every single freaking election, abortion is on the ballot. The Republicans ever get control again in this state, they will try to ban it in a heartbeat. Absolutely, try to get rid of it instantly. And don't. Hey, I don't know where you get the idea. I'm uh, I'm for women having a choice. We are in power. I got to get rid of it because that's what they'll do. Um, two judges from Trump, one judge from W. Bush, basically, are the appeals court here. Um, the, the, the appeals court on Wednesday disagreed with the district court judge's ruling on the 2000 approval of, of the drug should be overturned and that the generic version of the drug should no longer be available. The appeals court agreed with the lower court's opinion that several changes of the DFDA made in 19, 2016 and 2021 regarding dosing and using the prescription should no longer be in effect. So basically what they're trying to do here, so you have the appeals court basically saying, well, we're not going to outlaw it. We're just going to revert back to the original dosages. And even though the FDA has weighed in on dosages, we're not going to allow them to do that or allow states to be able to dictate this either. So it's, it's, they're trying to balance on a beam and let's just be honest about it. Um, The arguments about reducing access to mifepristone by reviews, re, uh, reverting to the more limited use instructions in place before 2016 are lessened by the fact that mifepristone would remain available, as would options for surgical abortion, the appeals court wrote. So once again, and one, and one, one of the things that we're talking about here is that this group, this right-wing anti-abortion group, is trying to say that we don't care if you've had a miscarriage. You have to have the most intrusive procedure to end that miscarriage, basically surgery likely, to have that happen because we're so against these drugs. That's what their argument is, that you're a woman, you're pregnant, you have had to deal with the tragedy of, un- of finding out that you, you no longer uh, are, are carrying a child, that you have had a miscarriage. And what this group is saying is, well, that's not intrusive enough. We're going to make it to where you got to set up a doctor's appointment and go to the emergency room and have a procedure done at extraordinary cost because Jesus. That's that's it. Um. Ho wrote his own opinion, saying that unlike – this is one of the guys from Trump. Unlike his colleagues on the appeals court, he believed the anti-abortion organization that filed the lawsuit likely would succeed with their challenge to the 20, 2000 approval of uh, this. So basically his argument is is that that, that we should uh, you know basically remove the drug completely. 
Uh, reverting to the pre-2016 instructions would lower when the medication could be prescribed from 10 weeks gestation to 7 weeks and changing dosage and timing. That would mean only doctors, not qualified healthcare providers, could prescribe the, the drug. Patients would need to attend three in-person doctor's office visits, eliminating the ability for the medication to be prescribed via telehealth and shipped through the mail. The generic version of the drug would be, could be at risk of no longer being approved, or the appeals court rejected that opinion in its Wednesday's ruling. The manufacturer of the brand version, uh, Mifeprex, would need to be relabeled the product to comply with the court's ruling. The case began in mid-November when the Alliance Defending Freedom filed a lawsuit at the U.S. District Court, Northern District of Texas. So once again, they are shopping, you know, as, as, as much as Republicans today like to scream about, look at all these cases against Trump, they're shopping around for judges, which they're not. They're just basically being filed in the districts where the crimes were committed. What Republicans are actually doing is specifically trying to take this to this judge that's out there that basically when a defendant walks in the courtroom, they shoot them in the head and say, justice served. And well, I mean, this was a case about property dispute, but okay, fine. You know, and, and that's kind of the mentality that they're having. And this, you know, they've, they've picked this district because they knew it would go through this appeals court and now it goes to the Supreme Court. My guess would be is there's going to be a lot of Republicans who are desperately going to want the Supreme Court to basically take this case and rule and say, no, fine, let's keep this you know, a drug available, uh, because the last thing they want, especially on a ruling that would probably come down in June of next year, right before the election, is the same Supreme Court that they applauded and cheered, yay, we've got conservatives and we're going to push this every agenda down their throat ruling that they're pushing the Republican agenda down their throat, saying, I don't know where you get the idea of abortions on the ballot again. Why? We got destroyed last time. Don't hold us accountable for what we have applauded us doing. Yeah, that sort of thing. Um, more on this when I do return. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. And remember, go Trojans! It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil. So MJSB Employment Justice Ross Stanheim is going to be joining us here in just a few moments to talk about ethics in the judicial system. Um, going back to this uh, court ruling. And by the way, once again, one of the things that's crazy is the, the, the medical report that they use to first get the original ruling is so flawed and so – obnoxiously done that a, a legitimate judge would have struck this down. The fact that I want to make sure we understand we've got a corrupt judge that makes the original ruling. Now we've got a corrupt appeals court that basically, well, they're trying, the appeals court is trying to say, well, we're not going to outlaw the drug, but we're going to revert it back to the pre 2016 rules, which basically say that you can't get, use it, you know, you know, after seven weeks, you can, you know, that you, you have to use it before then, and you have to go to a doctor's office and all these things. Because once again, making women jump through hoops because white men basically like to control them is the Republican mentality. But once again, I, you know, you're fools. You are a fool if you think abortion is no longer on the ballot. Republicans are going to work tirelessly to make it illegal. And as a matter of fact, I can point to about four or five Republicans in this state who will proudly say, yep, the second I get into office, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce a bill to make it illegal for all people to have them, including rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Because Jesus, that sort of thing.
Um, Nancy Northrup, the president and CEO for the Center for Reproductive Rights, said in a written statement, the appeals court decision sets up a showdown at the Supreme Court over baseless attacks on a medication abortion, which had been a lifeline since the high course reverse row last year. This order, if allowed to take effect, could jeopardize the FDA's entire scientific system of drug approvals and would leave patients panicked and confused about their health safety, Northrop said, which is true. I mean, this is basically saying the FDA has no right to basically regulate drugs, which is crazy. Christopher Zahn, interim CEO of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, said in a statement, the Fifth Circuit Court Appeals decision is another example of judicial activism that reflects ideology, not science. Reminder, one of those judges insisted, no, I think we should outlaw it. No abortions ever. The drug is, demonstra- is demonstrably safe and effective for its FDA approved up to 10 weeks of gestation. It is dem- uh, demonstrably safe and effective when used directed by telemedicine and is demonstrably safe and effective when prescribed by qualified advanced practicing cl- clinicians. The FDA made these changes uh, to the drug regulation for medication abortion and miscarriage management based on ro- – so once again, for miscarriage management – they want if you've had a miscarriage, they don't want you to be able to have this drug. They want to force you to have to go in and have surgery done because they think that that's the Christian thing. Unbelievable. And once again, can I just say this? Would any man listening to us be tolerant of a woman making all these decisions about, say, their prostate care? You can't do that because you're you 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 know you need to go talk to a doctor and have three visits and then we're going to make sure we limit what kind of medications you can have. It's crazy. The medical organization Zahn says uh, says looks forward to sharing with the Supreme Court the overwhelming evidence and consensus of the medical community support of the drugs and for medicated abortion and miscarriage management. My gut feeling is going to be they're going to. It's going to be similar to this, they're, they're, this appeals court ruling, where once again, the appeals court ruling is this. We're not going to outlaw the drug. It just has to be turned back to 2016 standards because – and let's be honest, and the reason why is they're realizing that this is, this is a landmine for Republicans if this basically gets outlawed. And yeah, it's going to be interesting. And immediately the state of Minnesota could call a special session, pass this bill, basically giving women access to this. Someone will sue and the Supreme Court will then have the funny, funny, hilarious point that after they undid Roe v. Wade by saying it's a state's rights to choose what they want to do with abortion, ruling against the state of Minnesota saying, well, you don't have the right as a state to basically make your own laws. Uh, yeah. Okay. We see how this goes. Um, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's disturbing that this this is where we're at, but you need to understand this is their ultimate goal. And as much as as much as Republicans will out, I mean, I don't care who they are. You could have a Republican in the most moderate district in the state sit there and say, "I'm 100 percent, you know, uh, you know, you know, pro-choice." If the Republicans won the majority and they have a one-seat majority, guarantee you that same person would vote to kill. All chances of a woman being able to have a legal, safe abortion in the state of Minnesota, period, period. They might say, well, I'll let it for rape, incest, and life of the mother, acting like that's somehow somehow, somehow compromising. But they will not let you do it. This is Abortion is on every single ballot for the rest of your freaking lives. You have to understand that. Um. The let's see, yeah, they don't they don't have uh, 
They have quite a few Democrats chiming in here. I'll go with Senator Patty Murphy, the Democrat out of Washington. It is absolutely infuriating that we have judges overruling medical experts and patients and doctor experience. Once again, we have to make sure we understand that. We have basically the established medical system who basically, if any of these judges get sick, will quickly run to these hospitals and bask in the safety of the healthcare system that America has produced. Deciding that that same medical institution, which will save them, which they would beg to save them, is not smart enough to make this decision that they, as a judge with no medical experience whatsoever, knows what's best in the old medicine hut here. Abortion is on every ballot from here on out. And I can tell you one thing, you have not, I can tell you right now, Republicans have absolutely annihilated themselves with women 30 and under because no one I know. I've asked my daughters, do you have any friend that votes Republican? And they say, nope, not a single one. And I want to remind you, I went to a Dinah High School. There was a very thriving and probably larger than the Democrats group of student Republicans at that point. And now... I hardly doubt there's probably any kid in that school district that's like, I'm a proud Republican, are you? I probably not. They have poisoned themselves with this younger generation. This is one of the reasons why Republicans are desperate to try to figure out some way to stop anyone under the age of 32 from ever voting. Hands down. That's that's their that's their new game plan. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. MGSB Employment Justice Ross Stadheim. When we do return, it is the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. 952-946-6205. Ross Stadheim joining, joining us right now. MJSB Employment Justice is the place we like to talk some legal issues and uh, Ross is kind enough to stop in into the studio and and join us today. Hi Ross. Hey, how are you doing, Matt? I'm doing I'm doing well. I I, I wanted to talk with you a little bit today about ethics. And and one of the reasons why I want to kind of set this up is that I, you know, sometimes I, I'm in the radio business, so sometimes I like try to deal with certain clients. I don't know another industry that has as many rules and regulations about what you can and cannot say when it comes to radio advertising because they have this high bar of ethics standards that you can and cannot say certain things. That's at least the standards I've gotten to, which is really kind of hard when you say, well, this is we hold – the legal institution, whether that's lawyers, judges, the courts, to a higher standard. It's hard then to see what's happening with our judicial system right now where there is this big question of what is appropriate in regards to you know, disclosure for, for judges. And, of course, obviously the story that's been in the newspaper is Alito and Thomas – and and basically getting their their you know vacation homes and home houses paid off and vacations across the globe you know this is we're you know i think a lot of people are surprised to a point that there aren't even more spelled out ethics in regards to the supreme court on something like this right totally totally so uh, us as lawyers and judges like we we're beholden to a code of ethics for judicial officers and judges they're beholden to um, a judicial code of ethics lawyers have a uh, professional responsibility board of ethics that oversees all of our conduct you always hear the thing about you know ambulance chasing right yeah yeah you're an ambulance chaser you're the, you know you you can't you know and that's 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 actually 
you know, true. Like you can't go sol- directly solicit clients as a lawyer and just find and just find out a crash and then say, "Hey, here's my card." Right? Mm-hmm. The the client has to reach out to you without, and you can advertise, but without you know your influence, right? Mm-hmm. So you know. <laughs> This is Clarence Thomas thing. It, it's very surprising because it's an issue of disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ethics in Government Act of 1978, uh, that's, the, that's the law issue here with regard to Thomas. He has a duty every year as a uh, Supreme Court judge and uh, Article Three judges too in Minnesota, the District of Minnesota. Uh, they have a duty to, every year on May 15th to disclose all gifts that uh, are over – uh, I think it's $166. And for 20 years, Mr. Thomas failed to do that. We're talking uh, trips across the globe, private jets, um, some real estate transactions, VIP sports tickets, uh, uh, being on a, yacht, a super yacht by uh, this mega donor named Harlan Crow. So it's an issue of judicial transparency, and we're talking, you know, the tally could be in the millions. Well, and it's also – it, it, it's it's basically you know money funded from groups who have an interest in the cases that are coming before the Supreme Court. I mean, it's not just you're getting a trip; it's you're getting a trip in some cases from people who have a vested interest in how the rulings of the Supreme Court come down. That's correct. That's correct. This Harlan Harlan Crow is a billionaire, and he had has a vested interest in you know the turnouts for his businesses as to how these cases go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an, another another uh, area of judicial ethics that I find quite interesting is a lot of. Uh, judges ha- own stock in companies yeah. where where you know their Johnson and Johnson comes before them, and if it's a big case, you know, like a th- big 3M case that could affect shareholder prices, um, they should be recusing themselves. And the Wall Street Journal report found that 131 judges from one or 685 cases from 2010 to 2018 failed to recuse themselves in cases where they had a vested financial interest in. A party. I will buy that a few, a handful of those cases might not be aware they have stock in the company. They might be in a, sure. some sort of thing. I'll, I'll buy that. But it's clear that there are a lot of judges who know exactly what they've got. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, and we'll just, you know, company ABC. I'm, I have, you know, 2,000 shares of company ABC. I don't think this this is a vested interest, although clearly then the question is, is could you even rule in that case knowing that if I rule the wrong way, I'm going to lose money on this? Right. It's an unconscious bias, even if mm-hmm. – or bias, even if you have a, a little bit of stock. And I mean – the judge should just recuse themselves. Who cares? It's less work for them. Yeah. Go, to, go on to the next. Go on to the next case if you have a little, a little bit of stock, even if it's a little bit, just to avoid that appearance of impropriety. And you know, we hold our judges to an, a really high standard here in this country. And more recusals like that would go a long way in mm. ensuring uh, public trust. Well, and then it goes the opposite way. The fact that you didn't recuse, your, recuse yourself leads us to believe that then maybe you did want to influence this case. That, you know, you forget about your attempt at being, you know, unbiased. The fact that you stayed on this case, maybe you were concerned that another judge might actually rule in a way that you lose money. So probably it's best I stay on this case, which is, you know, once again, coming at it from the other side of it, but it's, it's still just as valid. Totally. Absolutely, yeah. Matt. 
The I watched the. I'm going to go back to something you first said. I watched the verdict. Paul Newman, fantastic film. I love that film. One of the best law, law films of all time. And of course, the beginning of that movie, he's showing up at funeral parlors and handing out cards and stuff like this. Can, I mean, is the ambulance chasing like this? Can, is it is it kind of one of those things? And he's being very clear. He's like, "I'm here if you have any questions." He's not saying, I'm, "I want to be your lawyer." He's just handing them the cards. Like, if you have any questions, please just be in touch, sort of thing. You know, there do we have standards against that stuff? I mean, that movie was what 1981, I think it was. Do we still do we have standards against that stuff nowadays? I mean, I guess. <laughs> Yes, don't do that if you're a lawyer. Don't 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 go to a funeral parlor and hand out your card, uh, you know, to to folks like that, uh, you know, hoping to drum up business. Yeah, don't do that. I would advise. But yeah, there there are standards against direct solicitation like that in our code of ethics. I would say the verdict or uh, you know uh, Michael Clayton, best two law films ever made. I think hands down, I'm phenomenal. But also having to deal a lot with ethics on this. Now going to the Supreme Court, you had mentioned to me before we went on the air that. This is, you know, getting stuff like this, it's stuff that's happened in the past. It's just you need to disclose it. Uh, that you know, that RBG, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she basically um, took a flight and she, you know, she disclosed it, correct? Right. Yeah. She took a flight uh, for uh, a free flight to Israel from, uh, you know, a, a billionaire, I think, in 2017 or 2018. But the point is she disclosed it on her financial disclosures. So it's an issue of public trust. Okay, mm-hmm. you did this. And if this case pops up where this person that gave you the free flight is involved, you better you better be sure you should recuse yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's an issue of building public trust and knowing that, uh, you know, you're doing these certain things. Where it becomes a problem is what Mr. Thomas did, where you have over 20 years of uh, undisclosed free gifts, free flights, uh, luxurious vacations, and so it 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 now your ethics are being it called into question. Um, so what's really going on here? Why don't you want to tell us about this? What what's what's going on here? Well, and I will say this: this is just me personally. You know, if I know this, I'll tell you what, Thomas and Alito. I'll get you the super duper arm wristband over at the Mall of America, place for fun in your life. We'll do some rides and stuff. You just have to make sure common sense gun regulation is passed. And before you kind of get mad at me and joking about this, I'm not the one who's doing this. They're the ones that basically have turned the you know have undermined the legitimacy of the Supreme Court with this stuff. You know, we're inter- it's interesting in this uh, the case in Atlanta right now uh, with Trump and Fulton County. One of the things I've seen is that there's a lot of criticism of the lawyers. Oh, that there's a conflict of interest or this person might have donated to some campaign or something like this. There's a lot of scrutiny with lawyers. It does seem like when it comes to these ethics that the lawyers definitely get a little bit more attention than the judges do. And I think we're kind of getting the idea. It's like, no, we probably should be paying attention to what's going on with the judges too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, both both uh, both sides, uh, you know, have most lawyers are judge or, or most judges are, are lawyers in their past life, obviously. Well, they all are. Uh, so but it's it, it, it's it's absolutely a question of, you know, doing the right thing. Most of the stuff is kind of self-explanatory. But in so us as lawyers, like we have lawyer ethical lawyers where if we do, you know, have an ethical question, we call that person mm-hmm. and we, you know, get their opinion on whether you can or you can't do something. Um, because there is a lot of gray areas, you know, that are called into the, called into question. Some, you know, with, with these with these Trump guys or whatever, uh, you know, it, it seems like they knew what they should should and should not be doing, but they did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Well, in, in verses, you know, and it's once again, it's it's interesting because you have this judge now, and I'll bring up another case, the case down in Kansas where the newspaper was raided, which is a pretty clear First Amendment violation. You know, they, they went in there. I mean, there is the, – the police chief is trying to make an argument saying, well, if they're, they feel there's a crimes happen, yeah, but you can't – just because you don't like the news story covered, that's not a crime. And that's violating the First Amendment, but a judge signed off on that. And there's a question you have to ask yourself is, as a judge, is like, okay, you do understand this is a, you know, in that case, you'd almost want to, to fault on the side of the Constitution and say, you need to really bring me evidence of a crime here if I'm going to basically confiscate computers and cell phones from a newspaper. And they didn't quickly, by the way, the, the county down there basically ordered them to give everything back because they said there's no crime here that can justify this. But once again, it's, you, you got, Sometimes it does seem like, okay, a judge here signed off on this. This is a clear-cut violation of the Constitution, First Amendment of the Constitution, freedom of the press. Yet it, you know, it for some reason it just doesn't click in. I probably should not, you know, this is there's an ethics here that I have to uphold here and not just go with what my buddy is saying he needs me to do. Right, right. I mean, here's the thing about the law, Matt: is if a judge wants a ruling to come out a certain way. It is going to come out that way. Mm-hmm. And you can bend the law. You can find a case on point. You can you know, bend the facts the way that you want. want. You can find an, in every single case, you can find a, an out if you want that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can and judge, if a judge wants a case to come out a certain way, it will come out that way. It just, it's just how it is. You have, without getting into details, how many, have you, how many times have you ever had to recru- recuse yourself from a case? Um, of conflict. Because of a conflict of interest, uh, a couple times. Okay. Uh, it, it doesn't happen all that often, but if there is a conflict of interest where you know I uh, have represented a party before, where I have some inside baseball knowledge or something like mm-hmm. that, then I'm not going to touch that. And but you also have a, a firm that basically you you have enough you know you know players on the bench that if if you need to step aside because of the, that conflict, you definitely have someone there that can step in. Generally, correct? Right. You you can, what you can do is if there's a conflict of interest with like me personally, you can uh, be what's called walled off mm-hmm. uh, from the case, so you don't know anything that goes about it. Like a firewall goes up between you and you know the case that's you know at your law firm. Uh, it's a very common practice that happens at uh, really large law firms, yes. obviously with you know thousands of lawyers because you know there there probably will be some sort of conflict and every time at a case added to some inception you know the firm does a uh, a conflict check you know they do you know these people you know whatever blah 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 and everybody kind of signs off on it typically speaking at uh, large at my law firm and at uh, larger law firms for sure it's different though because i mean that process seems fairly straightforward have you? I mean, I guess I got to be careful here because I don't want to get you into trouble in any capacity. Have you ever come across a case yourself, or have heard of a case where all of a sudden you you become aware the judge has a massive conflict of interest? If if you have something like that, is there a process for the judicial for the legal team to be able to make an appeal in some sense, or is that just after the trial? You just have to wait for the trial to go through, and then that's the only recourse you have. No, you can make a motion to have the uh, judge recuse themselves for sure. Um, has it has it ever come across um, in a case that I had the closest the closest thing that that I had is uh, it was a case that was uh, in federal court um, where the 
uh, opposing attorney was representing the company, uh, and the opposing attorney was a judicial law clerk for the judge that was hearing the case. Okay. And technically, that's okay because it was outside of the – I think it's like a two- or three-year time period where that person clerked for the actual judge seeing the case. But I got ruled against in that <laughs> – I got ruled <laughs> against in that case, and I wasn't very surprised. And I wish I could have uh, you know, removed the judge from that case, uh, but it was in federal court and you don't have that right. Mm-hmm. So in that, in that case, depending on what your jurisdiction is, is, so if in that case, was there then – I mean – and I don't want to necessarily talk about your case. But is then the course – the option is the appeal process and say, wait, we, we've become aware of this massive conflict of interest with the judge that you – know, you know, you know, is it on the judge then to prove that the conflict of interest didn't, didn't weigh on their ruling? In that particular case, we did appeal, uh, but the, the the absence of recusal was or, or the the failure of the judge to recuse herself from that case was not the issue on appeal. Simply because the attorney that was uh, representing the company in that case um, was a law clerk for her, but it wasn't within like the two year time period. So technically speaking, as a matter of you know what was written in the code of ethics. The judge wasn't in violation there, mm-hmm. so it's unfortunate. I think it sh- she should have just recused herself, you know, in general, just because of the appearance of impropriety. But it actually wasn't a violation, so we didn't appeal that specific issue. And just, I'm just going to hypothetical this. If you say you had a case where all of a sudden you had a judge who, although didn't have to rec- recuse himself from cases, was 20 and 0 for the former law clerks for them that came before them, would that be enough to basically be able to say, okay, wait a minute, here's a clear pattern that if you were a law clerk for this judge. You're going to get the ruling. I don't know. It's, that, that, that'd be tough. I would like to make that argument and you know do a do an analysis like that. But uh, the, but that would be tough. It was if it, if the person was inside that two year time period or whatever, and the judge like failed to recuse herself, and there was a clear violation there, then sure, that's an appealable issue. Absolutely. Yeah, clearly, for judges, this is kind of gets into the political realm that we have to you know wherever the judges are, whether it's state judges, county judges, federal judges. That we need to have politicians, basically the Congress, set up rules that basically say you can't do this sort of thing. Although I'm, I'm kind of to a point still stunned as this story with Alito and Thomas came out. What do you mean there aren't rules about this? This seems like it would be the most no-brainer of all time. That, that's where the pressure – for the judges at least, that, that has to come from the political realm, correct? Yeah, and, and especially with federal judges, you know, there's there's you know this the law that I referenced, and that's at issue with uh, Thomas in particular is the Ethics and Government Act of 1978. And with regard, and you know, Mr. Thomas is saying, hey, you know what? There's a food, lodging, and entertainment exemption. I didn't have to disclose these these lavish gifts because of this exemption. Well, okay, but it's not like you're getting taken to lunch at Applebee's here. Yeah. Well, well, maybe Applebee's in Monaco, which yeah. <laughs> I guess is better than the standard Applebee's. Uh, for lawyers, once again, it comes down to the fact that you know th- th- there there does seem to be a lot of rules and regulations in place, and you know a respectable law firm like MJSB Employment Justice is going to make sure that they're following the ethics rules to make sure that you're getting the representation that's fairest for you. Correct? Absolutely. I mean, the last thing that you want as a lawyer is to be you know disciplined. Uh, by by the board by the uh, board of professional responsibility, um, that is. It, so we're not <laughs> we're, lawyers. If you if you're if you're a good one, you don't want to put your law license in jeopardy ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people have questions about a law case. Would like to talk to you about employment justice. 
they should get in touch with you, correct? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. MJSB Employment Justice. Ross Stad, I'm here. All right. <laughs> uh, what's the website? Uh, www.mjsbjustice.com. Mjsbjustice.com. I'll link to all the social media accounts as well. I always do there. Ross, as always, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on in today. Thanks, man. It was fun. My pleasure. All right. Ross Stadheim with MJSB Employment Justice. Let's take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Speaking of law stuff here, I just got this going coming across. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office said Thursday that it's investigating online threats against the grand jurors who voted this week to indict former President Donald Trump and 18 others, accusing them of conspiring to overturn Georgia's 2020 election results. The jurors' names are listed early in the 98-page indictment as required by law in Georgia, meaning they're making them the state an outlier among federal and state court systems. Now some of those jurors have had their faces, social media profiles, and possible addresses and phone numbers shared on Internet sites, in some cases with the suggestion they should be harassed, although it's unclear on Thursday if anyone has followed up on those suggestions. Needless to say, I guarantee you that these that, that, that there's going to be charges here. There already was the, the judge in the, the D.C. case. There's a woman in Texas, I believe I read that story, where she immediately made a threat to kill her. And... Yeah, that's you can't threaten to kill a federal judge. Uh, so you, yeah, she's in big trouble. Um, and yeah, it's 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 predictable because that's that's all the Republicans have got anymore is that they've got to try to scare you into their point of view. Um, uh, yeah, other prosecutions of Trump uh, have resulted in threats. The Texas woman was charged this month with threatening to uh, to kill the judge in Washington who's overseeing the federal election interference case. The jurors from Georgia case were drawn. From across Fulton County, and it should be, by the way, it should be noted in the Fulton County case, part of the conspiracy, part of the RICO charges here are this pre, this pastor who was being kind of encouraged to go harass these poll workers into admitting a lie about fraudulent work. He's talking about, I'm doing pro bono work, and he's talking about, you know, this is what you have to do. And then when that didn't work, they had uh, the one uh, lawyer basically threaten them with legal if they didn't tell the truth, and that was caught on tape too. I mean, so you this is what they have, threats and intimidation to try to get people to, to, to rule their way. And, and, I, and I'm sorry. I think that this – you would be a fool if you didn't step back and realize – and I'll, I'll go back to the first thing I talked about today, the rebate checks, and how Republicans, their only option is to get you to hate and anger. Ah, hate, anger, hate, anger. Ah, rebate check. You got money. You don't want that. It's horrible. Ah. That's the Republicans because they got to get you for them to win on this issue. They got to get you to hate money in your own wallet, and they are going to scream this. But don't fool yourself. One of the reasons why the far right is on the verge of screaming civil war every time something happens they dislike is because this is how the Republicans act. Because the Republicans don't have any policies to help the American people. They don't have any issues. They are just here to basically push an agenda. Whether that's trying to get rid of abortion, forcing guns in on schools, banning books down in Florida, or or basically just giving millionaires all the money. That's the Republican Party. 
And if you know they, they're they're like a spurned ex boyfriend, if you won't love them one way, they'll force you to try to do it the other way. Hour two is up next. Hour number two of the show here on your Thursday. Good to be happy with us here. Once again, uh, Ross Dadhan's interview from MJSB Employment Justice will be available on the old podcast, available all over the place. As a matter of fact, good time. I haven't said this in a while. Lots of ways you can come find me, and I like it when you find me. <laughs> uh, I'm still on Twitter. I'm not going to call it X. No, nope, I'm not. I'm on Twitter. That's at Matt McNeil Show. Facebook at Matt McNeil Show Progressive Citizen X. Uh, up on Mastodon, I am there uh, as well. And on, um, you can go over to Blue Sky. I am there. I am on Threads. I'm I'm everywhere. I'm everywhere. And of course, you can podcast the show. Basically, at all your favorite podcast sites, including on iTunes. So, hello, good to have you with us here. Republican Party of Minnesota, you almost got this figured out here. Okay, here is the tweet. This was a tweet sent uh, today at eleven thirty-five, talking about trouble at the border. Republican Party of Minnesota, open border policies have made it easier for violent criminals to bring dangerous drugs into our communities. If we want to tackle these growing drug and crime problems in American cities, we must secure our borders. They link to a story. You know where this is going. They link to the story from Port Director Michael W. Humphreys. It's talking about uh, officers at the border stopped two loads on Saturday. The first load, approximately 650,000 fentanyl pills. And the second load, approximately 132,000 fentanyl pills, once again stopped at the border. Once again, stopped, seized, caught, meaning, yay, go team, go, nice job, stopping the drugs. Do, Do the Republican Party, do they know what the word caught means? I don't know if they do. I don't know if they can read don't by the way there's someone also who's made the point here that that the, the two people who are busted were actually u.s citizens so i'm not sure exactly uh how your open border policy you're, are you saying you're not going to allow u.s citizens into the country because of the u.s citizens i mean you, you know they're trying to get in with drugs but the the drug enforcement agent people on the border caught them both and done and done and go team go go team go you guys are funny you guys are you guys on the right. You guys, you should you don't you don't know how to get out of your own damn way at this point. Nine five two nine four six six two zero five nine five two nine four six six two zero five. Patrick, uh, when was the last time you had to buy back to school supplies? How many years ago? Or your parents, I guess. Well, if you count college, it would have been ten years ago. Now uh, I graduated high school in '09, so that would be fourteen years ago. It seems like back when. <laughs> Well, I I remember going to high school and they supplied notebooks for you. That was nice. They used to they used to supply all that stuff, but they don't have to. The average Minneapolis family expects to drop six hundred and sixty six side of the devil six hundred and sixty six dollars. Oh, okay. Uh, per child on back to school shopping this year per Deloitte's annual survey. Okay, let me let me say this. It depends on the grade. Junior high was brutal and i remember i remember like the kids when they're younger and you had to get the crayons and you had to get the markers and you had to get the the notebook paper and the color paper and the glue sticks and all that stuff and i remember it being like two hundred dollars 150 200 then but then i remember like the first the seventh grade year it was 
Oh, that was, I mean, like 450 for one of my kids. Unbelievable. Uh, the big picture of the project. And by the way, this is because you've cut the conservative education policy has cut school budgets and pushed unforced mandates on these schools so that they no longer can afford to get the supplies the kids need and they require the parents to go buy the kids stuff. Ta-da! This is why conservative policy sucks is that when you're not forcing unfan- you know, when Republicans are, are not forcing unfunded mandates on school districts, the school districts actually might be able to afford some of this stuff. But because of Republicans, the big picture project spending on supplies, clothes, and tech is 12% higher than the national average of 597, 27% higher than the average for the Midwest. The total is down slightly from uh, the, the amount that they had to spend last year. Per the survey, tech products will account for the bulk of the expenditures followed by clothes. The average family expects to dish out about $157 on traditional back-to-school supplies. Well, the uh, nearly two-thirds of Minneapolis parents said they plan to fork over the same or less this year, citing having less available money as a driving concern. Throw the third of respondents say they plan to postpone non-essential back-to-school purchases due to the economy. The other side, those who expect to shell out more rising cost prices caused by inflation. By the way, I can imagine that these checks are going to help out a lot of people there, so good luck with that. Brick-and-mortar retail reigns supreme when it comes to back-to-school. Eight and ten Minneapolis respondents said they plan to do their shopping in-store, which you have to kind of do. It's really hard. Some of the stuff is really hard to find. And I will say some of the some of the stores do a pretty good job with it. Uh not all of them, but some of them do. But gosh, you know, this is this is uh, yeah, it is it's it's pricey. It is pricey. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Staying with schools. I want to uh, go to St. Cloud because there's a story today that I, I saw here, which we, we once again, we Republican education policy is to kill the public school system. Now, I, I think things have changed for them. I think for a lot of them, the mentality was to kill the public school system overall because they did not like the middle and lower class having an educated, you know, having an educated base. I think that that was I mean, one of the main points against, you know, the education system was the wealthy basically not wanting to have the educated. That it, it made it really simple for you know Worthington Dill Moneybags the third <laughs> to be able to get a job leading in the community because he was educated. He had a college degree. So henceforth, he had a leg up pretty much when as soon as he came back into town. I mean, that, that the guys that used to be corporate executives were pretty much hired out of, of college as, as senior executives. That, that, that was how it happened. The idea that, no, these people are not good enough for an education. These people are just good enough for sweeping floors and stuff like that. That's, that's an old conservative mentality that has that, – that kind of carried the Republican Party for many years until they started figuring out, wait a second here. Maybe we could privatize the public school system. Now, reminder, once again, Republicans look around at the federal budget in a very different way than the rest of us do. The Republicans look at the budget and they'll say, wow, look at all that money going to the post office. Wouldn't it be great if we could just take all that money and give it to a handful of wealthy people as opposed to 
the people that work at the post office. So how do we take the money from the post office and give it to a whole bunch of other people? Uh, they're kind of fun, wacky kids that way. That's what they've done, and they've done it with with departments and programs within the government in in multiple places and multiple times. And NASA, I mean, they, they NASA used to have a thriving budget. They got rid of it, and now we're paying premium dollar for a bunch of you know accommodating uh, billionaires to basically try to fly us into space because you know it's it it's going to it, you're going to make a lot of money for wealthy people. If we basically take all that money from NASA and give it to a handful of wealthy billionaires, and by the way, those wealthy billionaires, not only will they give us campaign donations, but they'll make sure I got a big lobbying gig when I get done with my political career. And my kids get hired by them, too. So, hey, you see, it's a win-win across the board. So that's how the Republicans do it. They look at a large bulk of money within a, a budget and say, how do I get that money to a handful of wealthy people? The public school budget is not an exception to that. They have for years worked hard at a program which they have put into place, which is to defund public schools repeatedly, push unfunded mandates on public schools so the budgets are strapped, get rid of of every kind of hiring standard for teachers so you're basically hiring the person who was flipping burgers at the gas station to teach advanced algebra that it, it that's that's where you're at right now with republican policy in certain states and they basically got to a point where then they started pushing the idea of vouchers that, that oh we can get kids out of these schools and the vouchers took money away from the individual school district which still had to function but yet they were losing large portions of their budget through open enrollment, not because the, you know, the school was mismanaging themselves, but the, the politicians mismanaged the schools to a point where they got to a situation where they said, I can't do it anymore. And they said, great, here's this Republican donor. I mean, er, here is this charter school company that's going to come in and take over the school district and they're going to school uniforms look school uniforms which you have to pay for but school uniforms oh isn't that a sign that the kids are getting a better education in school uniforms and we're going to just teach a test over and over and over again and use that really weird dynamic to basically be the evaluator for all schools one test that gets taught every day four times a day and see success that is what Republicans have done with public education. And every time you see it, they're doing it down in Iowa right now, and it's dismantling their education system. They've done it. I mean, they've gotten so bad. Some of these, some of these states are so bad that there's they're, they're kids that come out of these, these, these you know, Republican-fueled school districts now that are, are told that before you can go to college, you actually have to go to junior college and take classes because you're not ready for college. Used to be you graduated high school, you're ready for college. Not anymore. Not in a lot of states. So you got to be careful of what's going on. Now, thankfully, the DFL in the state of Minnesota has preserved our schools. And I can tell you from personal experience, I can't tell you how many people I have known who have said, my God, I have moved here. I cannot believe how good your public school system is. I can't believe it. There, these are better. These public schools in Minnesota are better than private schools in a lot of other states. It's amazing. Wide variety. And note to yourself, the worst public school in Minnesota 
is still probably better than the best school in many other states. That tells you how good, A, the DFL has preserved quality education in the state of Minnesota, as well as also how bad the education's gotten in, in Republican states. And yesterday we actually made the point about the new college down in Florida, which is imploding because the Republicans have mismanaged that into, into oblivion. But there are some concern areas, especially when you get some of these charter schools. St. Cloud is where we're headed. School leaders say they are tired of losing money to charter schools that prey on the district's enrollment and then return the kids to the district who are often barely meeting state reading and math requirements. Now, we should note that pretty much most of these these evaluations that we've had on the education system have shown that the charter schools do a far worse job at educating kids than the public school system is. We've talked about that numerous times on this show, where the charter school, when you look at the charter schools as a whole, now Republicans will point to one or two charter schools who get national recognition and say, aren't they great? That's everyone. But that's those are the exception, not the rule. The vast majority of charter schools do not give a better education than the public school system. And that's just that's the, the, the testing that we've had to do for all these years. Um, because of this, St. Cloud School District is asking the state for better accountability over charter schools. It also wants to free from ta- transportation requirements for charters that cost it a million dollars a year. The board unanimously approved Wednesday two resolutions to prevent the Minnesota School Boards Association conference later this year in hopes, uh, or rather to not prevent, present to the Minnesota High School, uh, School Boards Association Conference next year, in hopes the MSBA will add them to their list of legislative priorities to ask the legislature or study if charter schools are delivering on the intent of the original legislation and to fully reimburse districts for transportation costs related to charter schools. Minnesota is the birthplace of the charter school movement, but with the first schools opening in 1992, now There are about 76,000 students enrolled in 180 charter schools in the state because they're considered public schools. Charters are tuition-free and open to all students, but they often run by nonprofits authorized by the state to oversee the school's finances and monitor student achievement. While a handful of Minnesota charters have received national acclaim for their accomplishments, critics say the charter school experiment has failed to deliver on teaching innovation and improved academic outcomes. The real goal of the charter schools at that time was to create some laboratories for education, said Al Dahlgren, St. Cloud School Board member who drafted the resolutions. I think charter schools have a place, and I think that we can learn from them, but I'm not so certain the proliferation of the charter schools unfettered is beneficial to the education system. I couldn't agree more. There are four charter schools in St. Cloud School District boundaries, and two new charters are expected to open in the next few years, but the charters are failing in their primary purpose of improving student achievement. That's what, and that's what conservatives say. It's like, charter schools are great. They give, they're so much better. No, they're not. They're not even close. The 2022 proficiency rates for charter schools in the district boundaries range from 14 to 22% below the district's proficiency rate of 28%, which is already below the statewide average of 42. So I want to stop for a quick second, if I can. The statewide average for proficiency is 42%. You have charter schools in the St. Cloud District boundary whose proficiency rates are 14 to 22%, and no one has basically said, what the heck's going on here? Why are, I mean, that's half. It's half of what the statewide average is, and it's basically a, a quarter below what the, the, the public school in St. Cloud is doing, 
which is definitely has to, needs to be improved. But once again, you argue it needs to be improved, and the Republican solution, the charter school solution for this case is actually worse than the public school system. That is how – how can you have a any school that's working as a public school, which charter schools do, that have a proficiency rates in math that ranks basically half is where the, the, the state's average is and no one has gone in there and said, okay, something's not right here. And it's not the kids. It's the school because in other schools in the district, they're getting higher scores. More on this when I come back. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. The Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. See, here's where St. Claude schools are running into the, the, the rake in the yard every time here. Charter schools receive state funding, including money to help pay for rent and the roughly $10,000 per student funding that follows a student to the charter school when they leave the district. About 12% of St. Cloud School District students are enrolled in charter schools. While board members say they are in favor of parent choice, they're frustrated by the chaos created by last-minute changes related to charter schools, including the annual expected return of number of students in October, after parents decide they'd prefer the, they prefer they didn't prefer the charter school over the district school. All right, so parents say, you know, okay, I'll go to the charter school, and then they go back in October. We'd love to take those students back, but it creates issues with staffing and classroom management. Superintendent Lori Putnam says the October influx creates funding challenges because students often return to the district after the date the state takes the official enrollment count, meaning the district gets less funding while still serving the students. You should have a second date sometime around the, the end of the first thing, which it, it just for for this exact scenario. I don't know why you don't. We end up serving students, which we're glad to do, but serving the students in the majority of the school year. But without the funding, it creates higher class sizes for us. None of us are looking for that. The district is reimbursed for part of the cost of transportation student, uh, students to charter schools, but the st- district loses about uh, $1 million a year because it costs more to bus charter students. Uh, that's because the law requires the district must transport students from anywhere within the entire 250-square-mile district to the charter school of their choice, whereas district students are bused to the school to which they are the nearest. So basically, think about your local school district. You could have a kid who is on the furthest edge, and you have to bus them all the way over to the other side, which, you know, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not a big fan of this charter school system. I, I mean, sure, and I, I know. Every time I talk about this, I get, but Matt, my kid is in a charter school, and we're nationally recognized. Great. That's great. But you're the exception, not the rule. And I could make an argument, if you are in a charter school that's doing that well, you probably could privatize your school, become a private school like Blake or Breck or, you know, uh, you know St. Thomas, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Thomas Academy or something like that and, and have the same amount of success because we've known for years – I mean I've had kids – I've got kids. I've got my – my oldest is about to turn 22 and – so I've been I've been paying attention to education issues for a long time, and I've yet to see anything that tells me this charter school plan. It's 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 a red herring, and that's at least the way I look at it. It's a red herring. 
it makes you feel like you're doing something, but you're really not doing anything. As a matter of fact, you're probably hurting your kids' overall education options. And once again, it's not saying that there aren't a handful, a handful of the charter schools that do pretty well. But, you know, it, 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 you know it's, you go on out there, you have these people say, the public school is failing you. What you need to do is give us your kid and, and by turn, the money that goes to the school district and bring them on into our place. And we're going to give them a quality education, the freedom to learn, blah, 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 blah. And then you see the numbers themselves where, you know, the charter schools are way behind the public schools in public education. I mean, that's it almost feels like this. This is a grift that that, that basically this is this is a, you know, know, you know, just theft. We should have some standards and maybe it's time for us to ask the question. I mean, and and one of the things that runs through this story in St. Cloud is, oh, we're not against choice. Are you? I mean, okay, we we have the choices we have. You got public school. You can homeschool. You can go to private school. You go to a charter school or you can open enroll. All right. I think one of the reasons why we don't have the sense of community in neighborhoods that we have is because – it used to be that if you were in a neighborhood, every kid went to the same school. Maybe there was one or two kids that went to a private school, but pretty much everyone went to the same school. So you knew all your neighbors. You knew all the kids. You knew who everyone is. I live in a neighborhood right now, and I hardly know any of the kids in the neighborhood. Uh, I don't know who – You know, I, most of them go to other schools. They go to charter schools, private schools, open enroll. They're just they're, – they're not there. This whole process has annihilated the sense of community within – well, as as we know it, because we don't have the things that bind us together like we used to anymore. But in turn, this you know, regardless of whether or not you think that open enrollment or or private schools or you know, vouchers to go to a private school or something like that are good, if you've got a a proven system which is not working, why are we continuing to say, "Hey, I'm for this option"? When they consistently get worse results than the public school system. You know, if if you say to yourself, oh, I don't want, I want to have this other company come on in and do school lunches for us. And then everyone gets sick in the school lunches outside of one kid who thinks it tastes delicious. Do you go back and they say, well, let's have them back the next day. No, you'd basically say, okay, no, let's go back to what we had before. And so I, I think you have to – I think we have to come to a point that sometimes when you do an experiment, you figure out what doesn't work. And right now, I'm not seeing a lot of success from the charter school arena that tells me this is a good option anymore. I'm not. My kids went to public school. A lot of public school is what the parents – the involved the parents are and how they are there. All three of my kids graduated with A's. My recent daughter came with cum laude. She was she just got her AP test back. All four. She got college credit in all of them. Public school kids. You know, it's sometimes we have to step back and say the experiment's not working. And whether or not we continue with charter schools, I don't know. But I can tell you right now. 
I'm not seeing anything right now that is turning around these numbers where they are woefully behind the public school system in regards to results. And once again, understand, one or two of them do great. The vast majority don't. And like I said, it feels like it's just a big freaking grift. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota, the Matt McNeil Show. And of course, you got Robert Pilot and crew coming in here at 5 o'clock. Uh, great programming for you at night here. If you're not listening in the evenings, it is fan-freaking-tastic. And as I've, I've said this before, I've been at this radio station now for 13 and a half years. And frankly, I don't think we've ever had a um, a stronger lineup throughout the entire day. I, I am I am just so impressed with what we've got. And all you have to do is start at 8 o'clock, Rick Smith, for two hours. Rick Smith, 10 o'clock, uh, we, we've got uh, Ghost Box Radio. Uh, and, and fantastic. Uh, Bakken is fantastic on that show. I love him. And then Patty Vasquez out of Chicago. Love Patty. She's wonderful. And we, we you know, I, I'm just, I'm sorry. I think that it, I think it's fantastic. I think it is, it, it, it it's just, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of what we have on the air at night. So stay with us throughout the entire evening right here. Great program for you and uh, a lot of great information right here on AM 950. Walt is in South Minneapolis. He did want to chime in on the charter school issue. Let's get him in here before I get into Minneapolis and St. Paul. Welcome on in, Walt. Uh, hi, Matt. Thanks for your work. And I'm a retired St. Paul public school teacher. And I'd just like to comment that um, the whole charter school stuff was uh, initiated in St. Paul. And the uh, initial, uh, original intent was to create laboratories to introduce innovation. And as soon as you could be sure that the innovation was positive, you'd close the school and, and uh, put the innovation in the public school. It wasn't to set up a parallel school system. But that's so, what we've got now is the parallel school system. And right. frank, and frankly, considering the results, would you not agree, Walt, that the there doesn't seem to be much experimenting with what's new? It just seems to basically just get as many kids in there, push them out, and get worse results. Yeah, there's also been a history of financial mismanagement, et cetera. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for your work. I'm going to go now. Thanks, Walt. I appreciate it. I appreciate the time. Thanks for the thanks for for being a teacher. A wonderful and a wonderful institution. Now, I just. I agree with him wholeheartedly. I think charter schools right now are a problem looking for a, a solution, looking for a problem. And I just don't know if, you know, if once again, if you're consistently getting better scores from public school system, why, why you know, you know, I, I just, yeah, that, that's, that's the way I kind of feel about this. All right. So it's time for a Minneapolis St. Paul update. I got the stories from both towns. Uh, obviously, breaking news today in Minneapolis the city council voted seven to five in favor of a package of regulations that would raise wages for Uber and Lyft drivers, give them greater protections against unfair termination or deactivation. Jacob Fry necessarily signed off on the ordinance is in doubt, however, after he sent a letter to the council on Wednesday urging them to take more time to considering the policy. Once again, what we're seeing here is we're seeing the legislative body, in the case of the state, was the, the Congress, uh, the Minnesota House and the Minnesota Senate, pass a bill, and once again, the executive basically vetoing it here's again it's it seems like you know i'm kind of wondering how much pressure uber and lyft are putting on on fry on this one 
or, and you know, I'll let you kind of determine how you want to in- interpret that statement. The council likely lacks the necessary nine votes to override the mayoral veto, setting drivers up for more disappointed after Governor Walls vetoed a similar proposal earlier this year. Asked if he would veto the ordinance, a spokesperson for Fry said he would review the ordinance and its amendments he has until Wednesday at 4.30 to veto the ordinance or let it become law. My guess is sometime on Sunday, quietly he'll veto it and then hope that people forget about it by the time week starts. Drivers celebrated the vote in City Hall and embraced the ordinance's lead author, council member Robin Wansley. Today was a day that we felt we've been fighting for a long time, said Eid Ali, a president of the Minnesota Uber Lyft Drivers Association. It's a day we'll be celebrating for quite some time because it's the day of the workers won. Wansley urged Fry to sign the ordinance despite his concerns. You've supported all the amazing working right policies we've laid out that led at the city. Will you do the same in this moment? Show you're not in a puppet for corporate exploitation, said Wansley. <laughs> God, city city politics sometimes is fun. You're just a stooge of the man. <laughs> anyway, she did. Wansley did not say that. Uh, he's often, she's often been at odds with the uh, second term mayor uh, since her 2021 election. Lyft said it will pull out of Minnesota if the ordinance takes effect, or Minneapolis, as she said, if it takes effect, while Uber said it would could do the same. Minneapolis council members seemed uniformly unconvinced that the companies would actually leave the city. I, I don't think they're going to leave the city either, because I can tell you right now, you could pass these legislations and somebody will be doing it. Someone, You can leave. There's a need for a service. Someone will come in and offer it. And I, I, I think that there's – it's – I'm sorry. I think you called a bluff. That's what I think. But that's just me. Uh, They also uniformly said they believe drivers should be guaranteed a minimum wage, but they were divided in the detail of the ordinance. We should understand that this is basically this. This is not normal work. You know, you know, this is not like, well, they're making $20 an hour already. Why aren't they? No, they're not making anything like that. In his letter, Fry urged the council to wait until the task force on Uber and Lyft compensation convened and the governor following the veto comes back with the policy recommendations, which are due on January 1st. That's when the ordinance is scheduled to take effect should Fry sign it. Fry also said the state has requested data from Uber and Lyft that it should help them determine the fair rate of compensation. Under the ordinance passed by city council, drivers would earn at least $1.40 per mile. 51 cents per minute, which would increase with inflation and at least $5 per ride. Tips would not include, would not count toward the minimum compensation. The drivers would be entitled to 80% of any rider cancellation fee. Yeah, and they should because they're the ones that are actually going out there to someone's house and all of a sudden get canceled. You know, if, if Uber and Lyft are pocketing that money, well, that's just, you know, screwing over the driver, isn't it? Drivers say their earnings have declined over the years to less than 60 cents per mile and 14 cents per minute on average. Jeez, that's nothing. Both companies have warned the proposed minimum rate will lead to demand, uh, demand and uh, lead demand to plummet and ultimately hurt drivers' wages. Hey, if we pay you a fair amount, uh, you know, no one's going to want to take the lift in Uber. Dude, okay, I... I'm old. I'm 55. I'm post Uber Lyft generation. The people that take Ubers and Lyfts, they're going to take the damn things. I mean, that's just what they do. That's that's how they get around town. So you all of a sudden saying, no, I'm going to, in the middle of winter, get on one of those Lime scooters. No, that's not going to happen. 
That's they're going to take the lifts and Ubers. That's going to be the case. Lyft, um, in the letter of the council, said a $20 trip would double to $40 under the ordinance, while rides in low-income areas would be more expensive than taxi cab in Manhattan. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> Have you ever taken a cab in Manhattan? <laughs> you, I'm going to say this. It starts at about 60 Okay. It starts at about 60 Uh Yeah, it's pricey in Manhattan. Lyft said drivers in Minneapolis last quarter earned an average of $37 per utilized hour uh, in time being accepting – between accepting a ride and dropping off a passenger, including tips and bonuses. The prospect of higher rates has drawn pushback from some disabled residents who fear the service they depend on could become unaffordable. Council President Andrea Jenkins anchored an amendment which is included in the final ordinance that entitles drivers with wheelchair access for vehicles for a higher, higher minimum rate. Drivers say that claim is ludicrous. Their wages are far less, they say, and they must pay for their own vehicles, gas, maintenance, and insurance. Drivers, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not, they're getting paid $37 an hour. That's what you're saying. Their take home pay is $37 an hour. No? All right. I don't buy that at all. Um, drivers say the claim is ludicrous. Uh, drivers also don't believe that the companies will have to raise prices if wages increase. Rather, they believe the companies can simply take less of customers' fares for themselves. And, and, and this is where we get into the modern mentality towards business. Corporate America could have their company sinking into the ground and – they could stop it if the executive class of the company took slightly less money than they took in the past. That that building is going to go right into the ground. <laughs> that is the mentality of corporate America tonight. The executives that run these companies, they have placed themselves as uber allis, ironically, uh, over the the rest of everything else. And – Come hell or high water, they're not going to be taking any pay cuts. That 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 this is and this is kind of the system. It's basically ba- they keep taking money, and then everyone else, you know, basically, you know, has to pay for the executive you know, the executive paychecks. And that's and and I'm sorry, I, I disagree with the whole idea, the whole concept that that you have to go on out there and pay people a substandard wage to be effective when the people that are running this company are living in 7,000 square foot palatial multi-million dollar mansions. All right. You know, like I said, I think that's part of the problem right there. Um, if past Minnesota would join Washington state and New York city is setting minimum pay rates for Uber and Lyft drivers, the companies say fare rates have increased alongside driver wages in both places. Um, Minneapolis ordinance also takes aim at deactivation, which drivers can say can happen with little recourse, leaving them saddled with debt for cars they can no longer use to earn money. Under the ordinance, companies must give drivers five days notice of proposed deactivation or sanction and the opportunity to present their response within seven days. That raised alarm from the mayor and the companies that they would be unable to immediately remove dangerous drivers from the platform. The ordinance authors, Wansley and council members Jamal Osman and Jason Chavez, authored the amendment that would allow the companies to temporarily suspend drivers for major infractions that endanger public safety. 
For smaller infractions, drivers would have the right to have a hearing within seven days and companies would have to determine if it's more likely than not that the infraction occurred to keep drivers off their platforms. The ordinance would require the companies to reconsider the deactivations of drivers going back to 2021. A proposal the company has balked at, Uber and Lyft say they would have to retroactively review deactivations, which they may not have records and in some case find victims to testify against drivers. Councilmember Andrew Johnson advised taking more time to work with the mayor to win his approval, arguing that failing to override the veto could deal a greater blow to the effort the count, or basically make everyone who voted against it look bad. If the council – I'm adding that to there. If the council cannot override the mayor ultimate veto, the council must go back to the drawing board. It cannot be something forward substantially similar. It must uh, move the – send the ordinance back to committee, but that was rejected by a majority of the council. Councilmember Latricia Vitaw supported sending the ordinance back for further review, arguing pushing it forward would likely just fail to just hurt drivers. It's interesting, all these people that are voting against this bill, all of them saying the same thing. Oh, we're just here to try to help drivers out. We're not gonna. We're not gonna make sure you get paid a decent wage, but we're gonna make sure that we, uh, you know, if we try to pass this, it's gonna hurt you. It. It. Do you, are you happy with having a subsect of your economy getting paid a substandard wage? I I, I got to tell you, I remember, and this is not the same thing, but I remember when I was a kid and I was working for a pizza company, I was doing deliveries. And I remember how much that wore down my car. Holy God, did that wear down my car. And, you know, gas, I had to cover gas. I had to cover tires. I had to cover oil changes. I didn't work very long for them. But just in the like five or six months I did, I mean, my car was going through a lot because it was, you know, being used on the road. And if you're using your own car and doing all these things, I mean, that's chewing up a good portion of your costs. You know, one of the, one of the things from the earlier story, I was talking about the school supplies. One of the things that's nice is you can write off your kids' school supplies on your taxes, which is nice. I was one of the, that was one of the saving graces of, of paying those outrageous prices for those sort of things. When it comes to working with your car, one of the first things you realize is that for you to be able to get an effective write -off, tax write-off on your vehicle, you have to be driving an insane amount of miles. And any tax rebate you're going to get back, for the most part, is going to get chewed up pretty quickly just on the repairs and the maintenance to keep the vehicle on the road. I, you know, I, it, it's, it's clear to me that there's a problem here with the pay. The fact that the, this is twice now we've had a group of the drivers from Uber and Lyft cheering and chanting for a savior on this issue. That doesn't happen a lot of the time, okay? Sure, you get some industry groups who will show up at a, a committee hearing or something like that that they're interested in. You don't have people showing up in mass celebrating when, in the case of the state legislator, they're passing the Uber Lyft bill before it got vetoed, or in the case of the city council in Minneapolis, them showing up in, in with, with giddiness in that case, unless there are real problems there. And so I, I, I just... There's clearly a problem here, and I'm, I'm concerned the governor's panel is going to sweep this under the rug, that anything that they're going to do is just not going to be enough.
I'm at the point you call their bluff. Call their bluff because this is what capitalism is. They can leave. Fine. They'll leave. I guarantee you someone will be in here tomorrow. Someone will be in here tomorrow hiring away all the drivers and saying, hey, I'll pay the I'll pay the rate. I'll be the only I'll be the only cat in town doing it. 952-946-6205-952-946-6205. Obviously, this issue is going to be sticking around for a while. And, and, and my guess is going to be is sometime this weekend, Mayor Fry will veto this bill. And, and yeah, we're, we're back to square one. We're in like all these people that are voting against it. I, I don't want to hear you talk about it. It's like, I'm concerned about the drivers. Well, then help them. Stop trying to, you know, you know, not help them and act like you are helping them. Uh, when we come back, St. Paul, your turn. I got uh, a council update from them as well. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. It's hard to see people rally as much as they are. The Uber and Lyft drivers are, and they just kind of keep getting the stiff arm. Uh, it's, you know, clearly something's wrong there. Clearly, you know, people who are getting paid a fair wage generally do not sit out there and, and are demanding fair wages. And yeah, I just, I think, I think the drivers are getting screwed. I mean, they just, everything points to that right now. And a lot of people who should be caring, not really caring. Or, or acting like they're care- – let's be honest, acting – well, I, re- I really want a good solution here. But, uh, you know, paying them a good wage, that's not the solution. I, I don't know what else you- – if you're upset with how I clarify it, that's not on me. That's got on you guys. I'm just the – I am just the, 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 the narrator in the corner who basically sits and observes what's going on. So this is on you guys. Uh, St. Paul City Council voted to override Mayor Melvin Carter's recent veto of a proposal to ask voters to raise property taxes to fund early education, putting the measure back on the 2024 ballot. The council and Carter remained at odds over the initiative's feasibility and fate. Speaking with reporters ahead of the vote, Carter, Carter suggested he won't follow through with the program as written, even if voters approve it, saying the implementation is just not a viable option. The resolution, which is the council's first approval in July, puts on the 2024 ballot a measure asking voters to approve raising property tax revenues by $2 million a year to offset the cost of child care for families. Okay. Supporters say the goal is to fully cover the cost of lower-income families while eventually subsidizing care for all other St. Paul kids five and under. The resolution also calls for funding to support child care providers. The money raised by the tax hike would fall far short of the total required to meet the need, though. I, I'm about to say, $2 million doesn't sound like that'd be enough. But, yeah, uh, full coverage of eligible children under two would cost an estimated $39 million, twice the $20 million the levy would raise at its peak per the resolution's own estimate. So it doesn't go nearly far enough. The language doesn't say how the funds would be divvied up or the estimate how many families would be served under the proposed levy increase. Well, I can tell you it's not going to be nearly enough. Um, Sponsors said that their approach modeled after programs in other cities would allow St. Paul to build the program as interest in enrollment grows at a modest cost to taxpayers. Okay, that makes some sense, I guess. The funding in, in this case really matches the way that the program should roll out. Uh, said Councilmember Rebecca Noker. 
Carter said moving forward with a proposal that falls short of the dollars needed without more detail or buy-in from its, his administration equals making big empty promises to our smallest children, pointing to language than the resolution that says subsidies would be available to all eligible families. You want to know the truth is Carter makes a pretty decent point. You want it, okay, this is a pro- problem that's going to cost $39 million to fix. You're at most going to have $20 million. So what are we doing here? So he also argued the council's resolution lacks the funding or details needed for implementation and the language authorizes but does not force the city to act. Sponsors who disputed the mayor's characterization say they've misled voters with the pledge to fund child care for all and said they were confused by his assertions about the lack of authority added that they will soon begin to work on an ordinance that fills in more detail the potential program. The ultimate uh, fate and details of the proposal still could change before voters weigh in, either via action or by a future counsel or legal challenge. Carter says he has no plans to sue at this time. University of Minnesota political science professor Larry Jacobs told Axios he believes the lawsuit challenge to the council's authority would dictate such a policy via ballot measure that would resolve in Carter's favor. So... um. It's interesting. I am writing a blog post right now about the idea of boulevarding out 94. And part of that, and I may I'll talk about that tomorrow because I'm almost done with it. It's a long post. But one of the things which I point out is that there are times where people people in the left side of the political spectrum generally are idealists. They come up with these great ideas and you don't they, – they are somewhat hesitant to take criticism – when you look at them, and in the case, what I'm writing about is, you know, what do you do with the 160,000 cars each day that travel down the midway on I-94? And the response has been, oh, that's no big problem. Oh, that's no issue. And I'm like, um, yeah, it is. That's a pretty big problem. You can't just magically wish that away. And so you you, you have this problem. I like this idea. What it sounds like to me is on one side, you have people who are idealists who want to do something like this, which is fine, but they're afraid to ask for the amount of money that's needed to make sure the project is done right. That they feel as if that asking for the $39 million as opposed to the $2 million would would, would, would sour the, the, the voting base and stop them from supporting it. Well, do it right, because I agree with Mel, uh, the, the Mayor Carter on this one. If you put a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound, you're not going to save the patient, all right? You're just not. So if it's going to take $39 million, well, then stand by your idea. Get the $39 million and put that forward and put it to good use. If not, don't try to do half measures. That just generally doesn't work. Native Roots Radio is up next. We're back tomorrow. Till then, see ya.